It's good to sing God's word together, to pray from God's word, to read God's word, and now we get to hear God's word preached. It is a joy uh, to gather together with you this morning. If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please take them and turn with me to John chapter 6. We're coming to the end of the Bread of Life discourse in John, and today we're going to look at verses 49 to 59. John chapter 6, verses 49 to 59. I hope you've turned there, and if you would, follow along with me as we read from God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 49. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me... He also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray and ask God to bless our time in his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we pray for illumination now. We ask that your Holy Spirit would come and work and open our hearts and minds just as we sang in that last song that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to believe. We pray, Father, that you would strengthen our faith. We, we think of that prayer from the gospel accounts where the man says to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. We confess, Father, that we trust you today. And we pray that you would help us where we don't trust you. Lord, please keep me from error. Please grant us discernment as a church body that we would hold fast to the things that are true and so be saved on the final day. We pray these things, Father, confident that you hear us as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Several years ago, a prominent Christian writer argued that the hymns of the church, many of the hymns of the church, were far too warlike for congregations to continue singing. The emphasis on blood and death, this writer argued, was a relic of a bygone era, one that modern churches should just leave behind. This writer's argument was straightforward. Hymns that amplify the judgment of God, or the blood of Jesus, encourage Christians to think in equally violent ways. So instead of such warlike songs, churches should use their music to foster peace among all people. It was a fascinating article. 
More than that, the article raises a serious question for us to consider as Christians. Why do we sing songs about blood? I grew up in a small Baptist church, so the hymns of my childhood, the hymns that make me think of Sunday lunch at my grandmother's house, the hymns of my childhood are almost all songs about blood. Nothing but the blood. Are you washed in the blood? And my favorite when I was a little boy, there's power in the blood. Just hearing the titles of those songs moves me on a level that I cannot explain to you. Is that wrong? What's more, considering our culture's nearly insatiable appetite for violence, should churches rethink singing, Alas, and did my Savior bleed? Understand, we're not the first Christians to face this sort of question. In the years just after the apostles, the early church, for example, the early church was charged with being a cannibalistic cult. The social elites of the Roman Empire considered Christians to be vulgar barbarians who worshipped human blood as sacred. If there had been the internet in the first century, which thank God there wasn't, if there had been the internet in the first century, I'm sure some enlightened blogger would have said that those newfangled Christians were too warlike in their worship, that their songs focused too much on the blood of this man Jesus. All of that to say, the question raised by that fascinating article is actually one that Christians down through the ages have had to face. Why do we rejoice in the blood of a man who died in agony on a shameful cross? Should we continue to sing those songs? Our passage today in John 6 argues forcefully and clearly, yes. We absolutely must rejoice in the blood of Jesus. Here in John 6, Jesus spreads a feast for his church. And the main course at this feast is his own flesh and blood. Through the breaking of Christ's body and in the shedding of his blood, God gives life to his people. Far from encouraging violence, John 6 reminds us that the blood of Christ, the blood of Christ, is the heartbeat of Christianity. Without the blood of Christ, we are hungry and hopeless, dead in our sin and bound for judgment. But through Jesus' flesh and blood, we are satisfied and saved. We receive life in the blood of Jesus. That's the teaching of this passage, friends. If we take Jesus seriously, and God forbid that we ever not take him seriously. If we take Jesus seriously in these verses, then we dare not minimize ever the blood of Christ. For in doing so, we minimize the very good news that has saved us. Now, in saying all of this, I am not suggesting that this passage is easy. It's not. As we'll see both this morning, but especially next week. It is unsettling to hear Jesus say, you must eat his flesh and drink his blood in order to live. That's unsettling. That kind of language grabs your attention 
and it demands an explanation. What does Jesus mean? But that's precisely the whole value of this passage, friends. Jesus takes the most essential actions in life, eating and drinking, and he connects them with himself in order to remind us of the vital necessity of trusting him. Just as you cannot live physically without eating and drinking, so also you cannot live spiritually without feeding on Christ. The striking language, eating Jesus' flesh and drinking his blood, that striking language reveals the point. And it's meant to deepen our dependence on the bread of life. All of this then gives us our marching orders for this morning in this vivid passage on Jesus' flesh and blood, we learn how to feed on the bread of life. We learn how to feed on the bread of life. That word feed is intentional. You don't just agree with facts about Jesus as though mental assent to him is enough to save you. You feed on him day by day until his death sustains your life in him. More specifically, you can think of this passage as giving us three perspectives on receiving or feeding on the bread of life. Three perspectives on receiving the bread of life. The first centers on Jesus' death. The second calls us to faith in Jesus' work. And the third concludes with Jesus' life. Jesus' death, his work, and his life. Three perspectives on receiving the bread of life. That's where we're going this morning. Rather than avoiding Jesus' flesh and blood, rather than apologizing for the cross, we're going to learn just what it means to daily feed on him. So let's begin in verses 49 to 51 with the necessary starting point. Spiritual life comes only through Jesus' death. That's the first perspective in this passage. Spiritual life comes only through Jesus' death. Once again, Jesus builds a contrast between himself and Israel's experience in the wilderness. Notice verse 49. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died, Jesus says. Physical bread gives temporary satisfaction. Even Israel's manna, which was miraculously provided every day, was not enough to sustain life forever. Those who ate the manna died, Jesus says. And that bare fact ought to get the crowd's attention. They need something more than physical bread. If even the miracle manna didn't keep people alive forever, then you need something more than bread. You need spiritual life. Jesus then completes the contrast. Where does spiritual life come from? He gives the answer, verse 50. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. Unlike physical bread, the bread of heaven satisfies humanity's greatest need. It gives life. Now, throughout this chapter, Jesus has identified himself as the bread of life. Look at verse 33, for example. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Or, more clearly, verse 48, where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. What should stand out here is how clear Jesus has been. The crowd keeps looking for physical bread, and Jesus keeps giving them himself. 
That's the patience and kindness of Jesus over and over with increasing clarity and with remarkable patience. Jesus is calling this crowd to himself. At the same time, this also establishes Jesus as the culmination of God's provision for his people. Why does Jesus keep bringing up manna? In every, in every paragraph we've looked at in this chapter almost, Jesus keeps bringing up the manna in the wilderness. Why does he keep bringing that up? Why does he keep building this contrast? Is he trying to minimize Israel's experience in the wilderness? No, not in the least. Rather, Jesus is presenting himself as the culmination of God's provision. The Jews in Jesus' day rightly celebrated the manna as the evidence of God's mercy to his people in the past. They looked, back on, they looked back on that Old Testament moment and they saw the hand of God in Israel's history. And by recalling that moment, Jesus tells people to see in him the same kind of provision, but to a much greater degree. The manna was a shadow. Jesus is the substance so if, if the crowd rejoices in remembering God's provision of manna in the Old Testament, then they ought to rejoice even more in the bread of life in Jesus. The two go together, in other words. Jesus completes the picture of God's provision for his people. So at this point, Jesus has clearly identified himself as the bread of life. But the question still remains, how exactly does this bread give life to the people? How does Jesus' provision work in a person's life? Notice the answer Jesus gives, verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, on the one hand, verse 51 is repetition. Jesus leaves no doubt. There's no mystery here. He is the bread that came down from heaven. It's repetition. But on the other hand, on the other hand, verse 51 is shocking. Jesus introduces two new concepts that should alarm you. It certainly alarmed the crowd. Two new concepts. The first is this image of eating. So far, Jesus has spoken of believing in him or receiving the bread of life. But now he talks about those who eat the bread of life. In fact, this image of eating the bread dominates the rest of the passage. It's in every verse from here to verse 59 with the exception of 55. It's a shocking image. Jesus is the bread, and he tells the crowd to feed on him. We're going to come back to that in a minute. But it's the second new concept in verse 51 that demands our attention right now. Not only does Jesus say that one must eat the bread of life, but then he identifies his flesh as that life-giving bread. Notice the last phrase. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. In John's gospel, the cross is still a long ways off. It's still a lot of chapters away. 
But Jesus brings the cross right into view in verse 51. Jesus already has his eye on the cross. And Jesus' point is that his death, the sacrifice of his body, his flesh, is what gives life. This is how the bread of heaven gives life to God's people, by laying down his life in, in death. The bread of life is broken in death so that those who deserve death would have life in his name. The bread that he gives is his flesh. The cross is already in view. Jesus will die so that his people will live. Friends, this ought to be a reminder to us as to the centrality of the cross of Christ when it comes to the Christian faith. As Christians, we rightly celebrate God's grace to sinners. We delight in God's love for the world. We rejoice in God's mercy and His patience. All of these are incredible evidences of who God is. So it's right for us to celebrate the grace and mercy of God at the top of our lungs. But the only reason we know God's grace and mercy and love and patience is because Jesus gave up His flesh in death. Every good thing that we know as Christians comes to us through the cross of Jesus Christ. Spiritual life is ours because Jesus died in our place, bearing our punishment. The cross is central to the Christian faith. And here's why this matters. Here's why this matters significantly for the church in our day. At times, at times Christians can reduce the gospel to the benefits that Christ gives us. For example, the gospel is good news because we get grace and mercy and forgiveness and salvation. We reduce the gospel to the benefits that it gives. But when that reduction happens, when that kind of reduction happens, the gospel gets fundamentally transformed. The gospel goes from being relational to being transactional. The gospel goes from good news that we are reconciled to God to becoming good news that we get stuff from God. It goes from relational to transactional. I give God my faith and in return, He gives me back good things that I couldn't get otherwise. But the cross, friends, the cross calls us back from that simplistic reduction. What does God give us in the gospel most fundamentally? What does God give us? He gives us himself. We have spiritual life only through Jesus' death. The cross of Christ in its ultimate purpose is to bring us back to God. You are forgiven of your sins so that you can be with God. You receive mercy so that you will be with God. This is why we must keep the death of Christ on the cross central to our worship and witness. Because the gospel is never transactional. It's always relational in the sense that the deepest gift of the gospel is God himself. The life we receive from Christ is not Simply the accumulation of spiritual blessings that exist in a vacuum. The life we receive from Christ is reconciliation to the triune God. What makes the gospel good news is that we get God. That's the application of these opening verses. Spiritual life comes only through Jesus' actual death. 
Because in giving himself for us, we have the best gift of all, God. And therefore, we lift high the cross of Christ. Spiritual life comes only through Jesus' death. At this point, we've dealt with the, the shocking reality of life through death. Now we're ready to pick up the other shocking reality, that we must eat Jesus' flesh. In verses 52 to 55, we get to the heart of what Jesus means. This is our second perspective. Genuine faith feeds on Jesus' work. Genuine faith feeds on Jesus' work. We said a moment ago that verse 51 is shocking. We have to eat Jesus' flesh to live. And in verse 52 we find confirmation of just how shocking that is. The crowd is offended. Notice what they say, verse 52. The Jews disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? We ought to acknowledge that this is the right question to ask. Jesus' language breaks all human convention. So the crowd is right to ask what he means. But Jesus, for his part, does nothing to minimize their offense. In fact, he presses the point further. Notice how he escalates things. Verse 53. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Jesus doesn't walk anything back. He presses it deeper. Now, not only must you eat his flesh, you must also drink his blood. Understand, this would have been particularly offensive for Jesus' audience. These, this crowd is made up of conscientious Jews. And the law of Moses forbid them from consuming any meat with blood remaining in it. What's more, most Jews associated blood rituals with pagan idolatry. So taken together, you can see how the offense has gotten deeper. It's almost, it's almost as though Jesus is doing this on purpose. He's defying their every convention on purpose. Why would the Lord do this? He's clearly stepping on their toes. I mean, he's stomping on them. Why would he do this? Because his flesh and blood are essential to salvation. Listen again, verse 54. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. The reference to raising up on the last day is key. That's, that's the final resurrection, and thus Jesus is talking about salvation. That's why he says, you won't have eternal life unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. And so Jesus could not be any clearer. Eternal life is received through his flesh and blood. The reason why he's stepping on their toes is because salvation depends upon eating his flesh and drinking his blood. In fact, notice the negative positive combination in verse 53 and verse 54. Jesus emphasizes this both negatively and positively. He is affirming the absolute necessity of feeding on him. Look again at the text. Verse 53 is the negative. If you don't eat his flesh and drink his blood, then you have no life. 
Verse 54 is the positive. Whoever eats and drinks has eternal life. Negative and positive. Imagery and clarity. Jesus will not, he will not let the crowd's offense dictate his teaching. To have eternal life, you have to let go of your offense. You have to get over your shocked sensibilities. And you have to participate in the life and death of Jesus. Consume it. Take it in. Eat it. Drink it. Feed on it. There's no life. You will not live unless you participate in the death of Jesus. And the reason for this personal participation is given in verse 55. This is why eternal life comes only through Jesus' flesh and blood. Listen again, verse 55. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. There are moments every time as a preacher where you come across verses and you're like, this is so astounding, there's no way I'm going to be able to explain what this means. This is one of those verses. This is astounding. It's remarkable. On one level, Jesus is saying that his life and death are greater than Israel's manna in the, in the wilderness. The manna was not ultimate. It provided temporary life. Jesus' bread, however, is true and ultimate. He provides life eternal. That's the basic interpretation, verse 55, and that thought alone is profound. But, but... I will argue that Jesus is making an even deeper point, one that connects not only with the Jews of his day, but with the everyday life of every person who has ever lived. And it all hinges on an adjective. <laughs> Notice the adjective that Jesus uses in verse 55. His, his flesh is true food. His blood is true drink. The idea here is genuineness or truthfulness that corresponds to a greater reality. Genuineness, truthfulness, to where something here corresponds to something greater there. So follow Jesus' reasoning here for just a moment. We're in verse 55. Just follow the reasoning here. We eat and drink to live. That's a biological necessity, right? It is woven into the fabric of creation even the fabric of our own bodies. But that biological necessity is pointing to something greater, something even more true than physical life. That biological necessity is pointing to spiritual life through the death of Jesus. Just as we must eat and drink to live, so also we must feed on Jesus to live eternally. That's why he says his flesh is true food. And his blood is true drink. Eating and drinking, eating and drinking, in other words, exist to show us how deeply we need Jesus Christ. Why did God make us where we had to eat three meals a day? So that we would see that we need Jesus, the bread of life. Colossians 1.17, where Paul says, In him all things hold together. Really, Paul, all things? Yes, even eating and drinking. So think about that today when you go to sit down to lunch and you're hungry because the preacher went too long and you think, oh man, I love this good food. Why did God make you to eat and love that meal? So that you would see your need for Jesus. Even eating and drinking are meant to lead us to Christ, to teach us to feed on his work. This is why God has made us the way that he is, the way that we are. 
so that we will see our need for Christ. Now, we've danced all around it for a few minutes. It's time to answer the question that's hanging over the whole chapter. What does it mean to eat Jesus' flesh and drink his blood? That's the big question. If this kind of feeding is essential for life, then how do we do it? What does Jesus mean? Well, a common interpretation of John 6 is that Jesus refers to the Lord's Supper. In the supper, we eat bread in remembrance of his flesh, and we drink the cup in remembrance of his blood. It's a gospel meal. So, the interpretation goes, John 6 teaches the importance of celebrating the Lord's Supper. That's a common interpretation of what Jesus means in these verses. For my part, that is not how I understand these verses. And let me explain why. To be sure, the Lord's Supper is a remembrance of Jesus' flesh and blood. We take the bread and we take the cup as a symbolic way of remembering Jesus' work for us. I'm not saying that theology is incorrect. I'm saying that theology is not the point of John chapter 6. No one is saved through the supper. They remember their salvation in the supper, but no one is saved in the supper. And Jesus says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. So I don't take it that he's referring to the supper. Instead, I'll argue that the main point in John 6 is faith in Jesus Christ. It's faith in Christ. Eating Jesus' flesh and drinking his blood are vivid images that represent genuine faith. To trust Jesus is to eat his flesh, believing that he bore your sins in his body. To trust Jesus is to drink his blood, believing that his blood washes you clean. And this genuine faith creates a bond so deep between you and Jesus that it's like eating and drinking. You participate in his life and death so that you are united to him. That's why the image is so shocking. That's the depth of the union between the believer and Christ. It's like eating his flesh and drinking his blood. So that shocking language is synonymous for genuine faith. Why do I hold this view? That is an excellent question. The context of John 6 argues for this interpretation, and I want to show you why. Look back at verse 40. Jesus says, Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. Now look again at verse 54. Jesus says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Those two verses interpret one another. The outcome in verse 40 and verse 54 is the same. The outcome is eternal life. But the feeding and the drinking in verse 54 is matched with the looking and believing in verse 40. Do you see how they're parallel? In verse 40, you look and believe to have eternal life. In verse 54, you eat and drink to have eternal life. The two verses interpret one another. So as shocking as it is to hear Jesus say, eat his flesh and drink his blood, the point is to trust him. The passage itself, the passage itself, the verses are teaching you how to interpret it rightly. The, the whole chapter leads you 
I'll argue, to the right interpretation. Friends, I'm taking so much time here. I'm taking so much time here because I want you to see, I want you to see most deeply, this is maybe the most deeply held desire of my whole ministry. I want you to see that you can read and study and understand the Bible for yourself. You can strengthen your faith by picking up the scriptures, reading slowly and purposefully and intentionally, all the while trusting that God's word, amazing, amazing, that God's word is clear and plain and understandable for every, every Christian and dwelt by the Holy Spirit who picks it up and reads it. So, genuine faith feeds on Jesus' work. That's, that's the interpretation of John 6. To make some application, let's extend the imagery for just a moment. Let's, let's make some application by extending this imagery of eating and drinking. To remember the gospel every day is like eating a well-balanced breakfast. It strengthens you to trust God for that day. To read and study and understand the Bible is like sitting down to a well-prepared meal. It nourishes your soul so that your faith doesn't wither. This is how you eat Jesus' flesh and drink his blood. You commit to practicing the faith every day through prayer, scripture, confession of sin, and fellowship with the body of Christ. You commit to practicing the faith. Those practices are not religious duties that make you better than your neighbor. Those practices are like eating and drinking for your soul. You wouldn't go days without eating and expect to be a strong and healthy person, would you? Then why do we so often go days and weeks without feeding on Christ and then act surprised that our faith is weak? So you don't have to wait until the Lord's Supper to feed on Jesus and grow strong in the faith. I don't say that to minimize the supper. I say that to maximize the everyday pursuit of Christ by faith. A pursuit that can start right now, today, this afternoon, this evening, tomorrow morning. Take up his word and eat. Feed on the Lord. Genuine faith feeds on Jesus' work, and doing so, faith is strengthened. That's perspective number two. As I say all this, someone, someone is probably thinking, sure, we should feed on Christ every day, but that daily practice of feeding on Christ is hard. I got a job, I got a family, I got responsibilities. I have so much going on. This daily feeding on Christ is hard. Where's the encouragement? Where's the strength to keep doing that? That's an excellent question. That's where we turn in the final perspective, verses 56 to 59. Sustaining grace flows from Jesus' life. Sustaining grace flows from Jesus' life. 
Once more, Jesus introduces a new concept in verse 56, one that will come up again later in John's gospel. Notice what he says, verse 56. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. The key here is the word abide. You may recall Jesus' teaching in John 15, that he is the vine, we are the branches, and we bear fruit through abiding in him. It's the same word. The sense is to remain in union with Jesus. You abide in him. This, this speaks of the ongoing nature of faith. Trusting in Christ is not a one-time event. The gospel is not the front door to Christianity. It is Christianity. Faith is not a one-time event. It's an ongoing action. By continuing in the faith, we abide in Christ. And this abiding by faith sustains spiritual life. This is Jesus' point in verse 57, where he makes a connection with his own identity. Listen again, verse 57. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Jesus makes an argument from the greater to the lesser, from his life as the Son of God to our lives in the Son of God. You can follow the reasoning. As the Son of God, Christ has life in himself. He lives because his Father lives. This is foundational Trinitarian thinking. We, we may not be able to grasp the depth of it, but we can see the outline. We see where Jesus is going. The Father lives, and because the Son is from the Father, the Son lives. It's foundational Trinitarian stuff. But notice in the second half of the verse that Jesus connects that Trinitarian stuff with us. Look at the second half of the verse. So, the Lord says, whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is an incredible connection. Because... Believers are united to the Son who lives. We too will live in the Son with the Father. This is what Jesus calls us. This is why Jesus calls us to abide in Him. Why must we abide in the Son? Because the Son has life, and we live only in the Son who lives, and so we abide in Him by faith. All of that brings us to Jesus' very fitting summary. Look at verse 58. This sums it all up. This is the bread of life that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Friends, the key here is the progression of life from the father to the son to the Christian. Follow that progression. Why is Jesus the bread of life? Because he is the living son. Why does feeding on Christ bring life? Because faith unites us to the Son who lives. That's the progression of life. From the Father to the Son to us, we abide in Him by faith. Now, at this point, we're near the end of the sermon. We've done a lot of hard thinking. And all of this might sound a bit abstract, so let's go back to the question that started this last point. Where is the encouragement to press on in feeding on Christ? Where's the encouragement? 
The answer, friends, is that progression of life that we just summarized. When we feed on the bread of life by faith, the Lord Jesus shares his life with us. That life is ultimately our salvation, but perhaps just as importantly, that life is our sustenance as well. Christ calls us to feed on him by faith, and in that very act of daily feeding on the Lord, he sustains us. This is the entire point of Jesus saying that he's the bread of life. He could have said the source of life, but he said bread. Why? Because you need it every day to live it not only gives you life, it sustains you, sustains your life. So sustenance and strength today so that tomorrow you can keep feeding on the Lord. Abide in Him. Friends, what I'm trying to get us to see in all of this, all of this thinking about the nature of God, what I'm trying to get you to see is that the regular, ordinary, daily rhythm of knowing Christ is the very thing that God uses to sustain you in the faith. Practically, this means that you don't need to look elsewhere for sustaining grace. You don't need a fresh mountaintop experience that will keep you going until the next one. So many Christians, friend, find their faith weak because they're just chasing experiences when every day God holds out to them daily bread if they will just eat it. You don't need a fresh mountaintop experience to walk with the Lord. You need Christ. And you have Christ by faith. You pursue Christ by faith. You abide in Christ by faith. And by faith, Christ shares his life with you. So to say it much more succinctly, Christ sustains you through the very same life that he calls you to live. He sustains you so that tomorrow you feed on him again by faith. And so I'll encourage you then, friends, don't wait, don't wait one more moment for strength or life or encouragement to fall from the heavens. The bread of life has already come down from heaven. His name is Jesus, and you can know him today by faith through his word, through prayer, through confession of sin, and through the worshiping life of the church. And you say, those things feel really normal and powerless, and they're not like they're doing much. And Jesus says, trust me. Take me at my word and trust me. That's where sustaining grace is found, friends. So take Christ at his word, trust him, and day by day, Feed on him by faith. Sustaining grace flows from Jesus' life so that we live in him. Should we sing those old hymns about Jesus' blood? Absolutely, we should. But what if those songs offend people and they don't like to sing about drinking Jesus' blood? So be it. For we dare not minimize the blood of Christ. In fact, to minimize the blood of Christ would be to hate the world and to fail to love our neighbor as ourselves. For only the blood of Christ can give life. So, from now until the final day, let's be people who, who sing with joy. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. 
And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all of their guilty stains. Amen? Amen. Praise God for the blood of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to, we want to be strong in faith. We want to be strong in knowing the Lord, in making Him known, in living for Your glory, in serving Your body. We, we want to be strong, Father. We confess that we are often far too weak. And so we pray, Lord, today for the humility to recognize that the regular, ordinary, everyday rhythm of knowing Christ by faith, through His Word, in prayer, confessing sin, fellowshipping with the body, Father, that is where life is found. And perhaps even more importantly for us, that's where life is sustained. Every day, by faith, feeding on Christ. So we pray, Lord, that You would help us, that You would grow us, Father, in the faith, as we learn to feed upon Christ each day. Lord, give us grace to never shy away from rejoicing in the blood of Christ, for in his blood we have life. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Now, would you stand and let's sing of the blood of Christ together.